Gracious and loving God, thank you for this life and thank you for the call to serve you. Thank you for the community gathered here to study Jeremiah 31. We pray that our conversation would be full of hope and that we would learn some new things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall take your tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when sentinels will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, Save, O Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I am going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with consolations I will lead them back. I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I have become a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd, a flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall become like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will give the priests their fill of fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my bounty, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. Indeed, I heard Ephraim pleading, you disciplined me and I took the discipline. I was like a calf untrained. Bring me back, let me come back, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I repented, and after I was discovered, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was dismayed, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. 
Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he the child I delight in? As often as I speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, I am deeply moved for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days, they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the Wadi Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall never again be uprooted or overthrown. All right. Thank you, Evie, for that wonderful reading. So Jeremiah 31 is a passage of incredible hope about the restoration that God will work after allowing or even sending his own people into exile for a period of 70 years. And it starts with clarity. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. And so the vision here is not for one of the 12 tribes, but of all the families of Israel, and eventually for the entire world. We're going to see a universal scope to God's mission here in Jeremiah by the time we get to the end of the book. But the reason we start with all the families of Israel is because if you're not familiar with Israelite history in the year 722, the 10 northern tribes uh, were conquered and really just sacked by the Assyrians. And, um, you know, you often hear of the lost tribes of Israel. Um, this is, um, uh, these are the tribes that um, broke away from the tribe of Benjamin and Judah. Um, if you read the book of Kings, a lot of times these tribes had idolatrous kings and the Assyrians wiped them out in the year 722. And the tribe of Judah was often thought to be the remnant, but the remnant um, that God preserves is not the only tribe that will be saved and blessed, but 
the tribe through whom somehow salvation will come. And so the vision here is for all the families of Israel, um, because what does God say in verse three? I've loved you with an everlasting love, that the everlasting love of God will not let anyone be lost, will not let anyone be destroyed. And so because the promise here is for all the families of Israel, and because that includes the 10 tribes of the north who over a century ago uh, were essentially destroyed by the Assyrians who have uh, intermarried with the Assyrians. I mean, these 10 tribes are essentially lost, uh, at least in the form they took in the year 722 before they were conquered. Because God is speaking of restoring these people who over a century ago uh, experienced great devastation, this everlasting love of God spoken of in verse 3 and this promise that God will again be the God of all the families of Israel in verse 1, uh, I can only conclude that this points to resurrection, that God is going to do something akin to um, bringing life out of death. Because again, it's been over 100 years and these tribes have been conquered. In verse 4, God says, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. And I think that this is a profound thing for God to say because God's accusation against Israel is that they have committed adultery, not just idolatry, but adultery because God is their spouse. God wants intimacy. God wants to marry his people uh, but they go and seek other lovers. Uh, in fact, last week in chapter 30, um, Jeremiah says, all your lovers have abandoned you. I mean, this is really God's charge. You've taken other lovers for yourself. You've committed adultery. Uh, and so by calling Israel a virgin, God is imputing or reckoning or ascribing a quality to them that's not actually consistent with their behavior. And one of the things we'll see in Paul's letter to the Romans is that Paul will say that Christ does something similar uh, for us um, uh, in reckoning righteousness to us through faith or crediting us with the status that is not congruent with our behavior. It's one of the ways we can actually understand grace. It's one of the ways we can understand forgiveness that um, that God speaks a word of goodness and innocence over us before our behavior actually aligns with that spoken declaration. And then, of course, God figures out how to bring our behavior in congruence with what that declaration is. And so God calls Israel a virgin. He calls them pure, even though their behavior is anything but. Uh, he tells them in verse five that they're going to plant vineyards. And again, a vineyard is a sign of economic prosperity. It's a sign of health. It's a sign of well-being. But these vineyards are going to be planted where? On the mountains of Samaria. And so again, this is a promise of restoration for the northern tribes of Israel because the mountains of Samaria was a region that was prosperous and fertile, but this was one of the regions conquered by the Assyrians in the year 722 BC. And so vineyards on the mountains of Samaria, this points to the promise being both for the north and the south. 
And by the way, uh, if you're wondering who the Samaritans are, Samaria, Samaritan, because the Samaritans are not really well liked uh, in the New Testament, the Samaritans, they're kind of the, I mean, I, I hate to put it this way, but they're kind of the half-breeds who um, over time um, maybe part Israelite, maybe have some Israelite blood but over the last several centuries, they had mingled with the other nations. They had, you know, ceased to adopt um, a lot of Israelite worship. They kind of held on a little bit to some of the knowledge of Yahweh, but they weren't fully Jewish. And, you know, as it often goes, uh, we often have the hardest time with people who uh, are kind of like us, but not really like us, as opposed to people who are radically different. So that's who the Samaritans were in the New Testament, the descendants of people in this region after centuries of mingling with the nations that conquered them. And, and of course, the people of Judah didn't do this. The people of Benjamin didn't do this, right? Because whenever we study Jeremiah 29 and God tells um, his people to marry and to have children in the midst of being in Babylon. He doesn't mean have children with the Babylonians. He means continue to marry and have children within your own Israelite nation, because this is about preserving identity. This was the way one's Jewish identity was preserved, right? And so, um, uh, in fact, it was so important that whenever we find Nehemiah and Ezra uh, speaking to the exiles who return, uh, he tells anyone who took a foreign wife uh, to put her away. Now, that's a, a fairly controversial passage because, you know, what about this poor woman and their children? But part of what Ezra and Nehemiah are getting at is preserving their understanding of what it means to be Jewish as they return to um, the promised land of Jerusalem. Um, in verse 8, um, God says, I'm going to bring them back from the land of the north. I'm going to gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, and among them shall be the blind and the lame. And so what is being referred to here? Well, on the one hand, I think that God has been pointing to the people's return to Jerusalem, because again, in 586 BC, and of course, 10 years before that, um, there, there were really two Babylonian exiles. The final one was in the year 586, and uh, the people were sent into exile for 70 years. And so part of the promise is that God's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. But because I think this chapter is not just about what happened historically, but about all of us being gathered from wherever we find ourselves east of Eden into the new Jerusalem, you know, God promises that that salvation will be for the blind and the lame. And I point that out because, um, you know, we often think of Jesus as being a radical with all of his, you know, talking about um, the heart and knowing God from the heart and the way that he embraced the blind and the lame. And actually, as we read the book of Jeremiah, 
it's not that Jesus was radical, but that the religious leaders of his day actually forgot what the prophecy was. They forgot what the teaching was. And so whenever Jesus opened the eyes of the blind and Jesus healed the lame, this was not some innovation from what God said he was going to do. It was God fulfilling what he said he was going to do, right? And so the inclusion of the blind and the lame, um, that was always baked into the promise of God. Um, in verse 10, I love how Jeremiah says, he who scattered Israel will gather him again and will keep Israel as a shepherd keeps a flock. I think that that's an important verse and points to Jesus, the good shepherd. There's so much good shepherd imagery in scripture, whether it's Psalm 23, whether it's um, Ezekiel speaking about those who shepherd his people, or Jesus in John chapter 10 saying, I am the good shepherd. But rest assured, whenever Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he knew exactly what he was saying, right? Because here, he who scattered Israel will shepherd Israel. Well, who scattered Israel? God scattered Israel. And so here Jesus is basically saying, I'm the one who scattered my people, and now I will keep my people as a shepherd keeps his flock. Um, I want to point your attention to verse 9, where Jeremiah, or God says to Jeremiah, Ephraim is my firstborn. Uh, Ephraim was one of the 12 tribes. Uh, and so if you remember your Bible history, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, they make up the tribe of Joseph. Um, but they were really, I think, two distinct tribes. And Ephraim played a significant leadership role in the conquest. Uh, Joshua, who succeeded Moses as the leader of the Israelites, was from the tribe of Ephraim. Um, this was one of the larger and more influential tribes in terms of population and territory. And so uh, sometimes Ephraim is used symbolically in the Bible to represent the northern kingdom as a whole. And so whenever God says, Ephraim is my firstborn, God, again, is not talking about one of the tribes of the north, but I think God is talking about all the tribes of the north. That's a way of speaking about the lost tribes of Israel um, in a symbolic way. And in verse 12, God says, their life again shall become like a watered garden. And of course, where does our story begin? Our story begins in a watered garden. It's called Eden, right? It had all these rivers that made it a lush place for life to grow. And what has Jeremiah's main metaphor been? It's been around bearing fruit. And so whenever God restores his people's fortunes, when he brings them back to their own land, they're going to be like a watered garden. But this is a future prophecy because right now the people are going into exile. So in verse 15, Jeremiah says, Rachel is weeping for her children. Um, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children. And so again, this is another symbolic name because Rachel is long dead. Rachel was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Again, Joseph is the father of Ephraim. Ephraim represents the north. 
Benjamin is one of the tribes of the south. And so here we have the mother of all Israel, north and south, symbolically speaking, weeping for all her descendants who are in captivity. And interestingly enough, Matthew is going to quote this verse uh, in relation to King Herod's slaughter of the innocents, <clears throat> which is a curious um verse to choose um but um here rachel is is seen to be the mother of all israel weeping for her children's present predicament and in a sense i think rachel could even be a stand-in for god here i mean um and and one of the gospels jesus compares god to a mother hen who longs to gather her brood under her wings but weeps because they're not willing. And, and Rachel is seen in a similar posture. You know, even though God sends the people into exile, God doesn't send the people into exile out of hatred, but God allows them to experience the curses of breaking the covenant, even though it breaks God's heart. And so the weeping Rachel and the weeping God and the weeping Jeremiah they're all images of a God weeping as his people suffer, even as God plans to restore them and to bring them back um, to their own country. Um, I love verse 20 when God says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he the child of Elidon? As often as I speak against him, I still remember him. And one can say that salvation is God remembering us. I mean, there's going to be a, a big dialectic in Jeremiah between remembering and forgetting. God remembers us. God forgets our sin. God remembers us. We forget God. Um, uh, I'm so, I don't know if I said God remembers our sin or, or forgets our sin. I meant God forgets our sin if I didn't say that. Um but, but here God remembers us. And part of what I think Jeremiah is trying to communicate is that whenever someone's in exile, they feel forgotten. Uh, whenever you've been in exile in your own life, whenever you have not felt close to God, I mean, people tell me all the time, I feel like God has forgotten about me. I hear that more than I hear anything else. And God's word is, I still remember you. And so as the people go into exile for 70 years, which is a really long time, a lot of people who go into exile will die in exile. What they have to remember is that God remembers them. And so I guess the question is, what does it mean to know that God remembers you? Uh, in verse 29, uh, as for this future day, God says, it shall no longer be said the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And uh, this was a proverbial saying that suggested a connection between the sins of the parents who eat the sour grapes and the suffering of their children whose teeth are set on edge. Um, and, and this is important because in a sense, the people are going into exile in part because of their own sins, but also in part because of their parents' sins. Um, everyone has broken the covenant, and so the whole people go into exile. And so part of what Jeremiah is saying here, or God is saying, is that in the future, 
uh, each person's going to be held accountable for their own sins, uh, that each person's going to bear the consequences of their actions individually. And I think this feels very important since um, the children are exiled in part in connection with their parents' sins. At least that's how it was understood. And so verse 31, God says that God says the days are surely coming when I will make a new covenant with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah, the north and the south, uh, or to go back to the very first verse, all the families of Israel. Uh, I'm going to make a covenant with all my people, even those who are long dead. Uh, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, uh, a covenant they broke even though I was their husband, says the Lord. And so again, God's the husband. Those who break the covenant are the adulterous wives in this metaphor, uh, but God calls them, O virgin Israel, at the beginning. Uh, and so that raises the question, what is this new covenant and how is it different from the former covenant? Because God says, it's not going to be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. Is this new covenant more one-sided? Is it less contractual? Uh, does it have fewer laws? You know, what are the characteristics of this new covenant? Well, part of it, God says, is that the law is not going to be written on tablets. The law is going to be written on the human heart. That's what it says in verse 33. It says, no longer shall they teach one another or say, know the Lord, uh, for they're all going to know me. Uh, from the least to the greatest, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And so part of the new covenant is going to be rooted in complete and total forgiveness. And suffice it to say, whenever Jesus, the night before he died, um, took the bread and said, this is my body, and he took the wine and said, this is my blood, what did he say? This is my blood of the new covenant. Right. So Jesus, the night before he died, had Jeremiah 31 in mind, where something would be written on his people's hearts, where they would finally know the Lord and all the Lord's fullness and where God would forgive their sin. And of course, what did Jesus pray from the cross? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's almost like from the cross, Jesus remembered their sin no more. And so whatever this new covenant is for Christians, we believe that it was inaugurated somehow by Jesus's death and resurrection. The final thing I want to say in verse 38, uh, whenever God talks about Jerusalem being rebuilt and how the city is going to be enlarged, um, that Jeremiah and God's concern is not with, you know, being a good, uh, it's not with, you know, cartography. It's not around historically understanding how big Jerusalem was. The idea of Jerusalem being enlarged is more symbolic than anything else. Why does Jerusalem need to be enlarged? Jerusalem needs to be enlarged because more people are going to be gathered in, all the families of Israel, all the families of the earth, right? Because what's the promise to Abraham? In you, in Israel, all the world will be blessed. Um, and this really reminds us, I think, of Revelation 21, where, you know, Jerusalem comes down from heaven 
where the gates are always open by day or night. They're never shut, right? Jerusalem is massive. It's got room for all of God's children. And so at the end of Jeremiah 31, when it talks about Jerusalem being enlarged, it's not talking about how an ancient city needs to grow in square footage, but how the holy city is going to be big enough for all of God's creation, all those who want to know the Lord to come in and that it's going to have plenty of room.